So increasingly, we're starting to see that actually profits and purpose are not really trade-offs, but I would argue reinforce each other. Um, you know, I would uh, argue, as I've done in Unilever, that it is actually profits through purpose that might be your best strategy nowadays. In Unilever, over my 10-year tenure, that meant 300% shareholder return, 19% uh, return on invested capital, uh, and, and outperforming actually top and bottom line our competitive set consistently year after year. So what we now start to see and what I think COVID has brought to life is that the cost of not acting now, uh, we've waited frankly so long, that the cost of not acting is actually becoming higher than the cost of acting. You're listening to New Food Order. Welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Danielle Gould, founder and CEO of Food Tech Connect, the first community for food innovation, best known for our newsletter that tracks all the business, tech, and investment trends from farm to fork. And I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, the head of media and research for AgFunder, one of the world's most active food and ag technology venture capital firms, and also a journalist. Today, we're going to explore what it means to build a people and planet-friendly company with Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever and author of Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. So to put into perspective why we were so excited about interviewing Paul, he's a big deal. He ran a company that is worth over $100 billion. It has revenues of about $50 billion each year and employs 150,000 employees. And while not all of its 400 brands are in food, a lot of them are, and they are names that you may love, like Magnum, Hellman's, Ben & Jerry's, and Pot Noodle. Yes, and not only did he run this massive company, but he did it in a way that increases shareholders' returns by 300% and helped the company rank number one in the world for sustainability for years. So because of that, Paul has emerged as a leader in this conscious business movement. And we wanted to dive in to his decades of experience in food and business to find out how acting responsibly can actually improve, not harm, a business's bottom line. Yeah, and we dug into the scale of the problem we're facing and how unsustainable business as usual is. And we talked about how to take companies from the point where they're doing the bare minimum for PR and getting them to a point where they're actually making a significant positive impact. Yes, and because of that, we wanted to discuss examples of business models whose structure support the creation of net positive companies because we really want to be able to share some examples with you guys. And we talked about the cost of failing to do so. So we were so grateful to Paul for taking the time to talk to us and for you to tuning in. And let's get into it. So he defines a net positive business as one that improves the life of everyone it touches from customers and suppliers to employees and communities. He says that a net positive business model is one that takes ownership of all the social and environmental impacts it creates. And yeah, we definitely need more of that. And then he wraps the definition by saying a net positive business model partners with competitors, civil society and governments to drive transformative change so that no single group of enterprise can deliver alone. But all theories and philosophies need plans. So let's start there. So really digging into it now, what does this look like in practice? What is the roadmap for how a company can actually become net positive? And are there some examples of companies that have successfully done this or are doing it? Um, you know, and what's the key to their success? 
Yeah. So, so again, I mentioned the circumstances that we're living well beyond our planetary boundaries and that our gross model that we currently have is not sustainable. You know, this wonderful world is 4.6 billion years old. If I put it at the scale of 46 years, human beings have only been here for four hours. The Industrial Revolution only started one minute ago. And in that one minute, we've cut down half of the world's forests. Uh, we've lost 68% of the world's species, uh, amphibians, birds, reptiles in the last five decades alone. Some people call this the, um, the sixth greatest extinction. So these are the issues that we need to address. And these are also the issues that the food system needs to address. Unfortunately, we also find most of the poverty itself in the food system. So what we're talking about in the book, uh, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take, is really to start a movement where we reframe what good looks like. Most companies at best are in what I call the CSR mode, corporate social responsibility. A little bit less deforestation in my value chain, a little bit less plastics in the oceans, a little bit less carbon emission. But, you know, a little bit less, is, a little bit less bad is still bad. I used to murder 10 people. Now I'm murdering only five people. I'm not a better murderer. And that's really the issue that we're facing right now. Most companies set themselves objectives that frankly are not in line with what we need to stay within these planetary boundaries. So people say, I get it. Then I want to be sustainable, neither good nor bad, no harm. But a world that has overshot its planetary boundaries by such extent, the only thing I believe that is acceptable in our thinking, in our business models, is to think regenerative, restorative, reparative, and that is what we call net positive. And we ask a very simple question in our book, uh, how can companies profit from solving the world's problems, not actually creating the world's problems? With the follow-up question is, is the world better off because your business is in it, yes or no? And I'm not so sure how many companies can answer that in the affirmative. I like the concept that uh, actually came from Harvard with some work that has been done with the Rockefeller Foundation that I'm on the board of on uh, planetary health, which is a, a broad, uh, a fairly bold new idea that captures the conviction that uh, humanity actually can no longer safeguard human health in a world where our natural life support systems are actually being uh, uh, attacked and, and uh, disappearing and that they go hand in hand. Um, so looking at it holistically, including health, people, and the environment is probably the way that we need to move forward. And that's the wonderful part of, uh, of the concept of planetary health. So what does that look like in practice? And are there examples you can share of companies that have done this well, companies that we can look at as a model? Well, increasingly, we're on that journey to get to these net positive companies, and we're seeing actually signs of that starting to work. Uh, Nestle or Unilever having made commitments to move to regenerative agriculture. Microsoft having made a commitment to take carbon out of the air, going back to uh, 1975 when the company started. Uh, Walmart making commitments to protect 1 million square miles of oceans and protect our biodiversity there. So increasingly, we see signs. More companies making water-positive commitments or in the building industry, energy positive buildings. It's a mindset shift that needs to happen. Uh, now companies need to integrate it at scale, at speed, and actually consistently 
in all they do. And in that respect, we still have some hurdles to overcome, not least uh, the governments themselves. Uh, these are challenges that no individual company can solve by themselves. So it requires these broader partnerships to drive these bigger systems changes that we need to protect these uh, burning issues. So I'd like to dig into this a bit further. You know, I've consulted with some of the largest food companies in the world, and many of them are now making commitments to adopt net positive practices, things like transitioning their supply chains to regenerative agriculture and reducing food waste. But, you know, honestly, it's really not enough. When you look under the hood, there's a lot more greenwashing or climate washing going on than real action. And there are so many well-intentioned people at these companies, but often they don't know where to start or how to align stakeholders around this mission and this work. So would love to dig in with you based on your experience in Unilever. You know, can you walk us through what does it look like for a public company to become net positive? How do you even begin to start to make that shift? How do leaders reconcile the challenge of balancing purpose and profit? How do they completely rethink the way that they do business? I know that's a lot, so I'll let you jump in. Yeah, so I agree with you that no company, even Unilever, has actually achieved that state of what we call a net positive company. But I think some companies are farther ahead on that journey than other companies, not least helped in some cases by rapidly changing legislation like the European Green Deal or the Farm to Fork Packets or the Biodiversity Packets that is coming in that uh, obviously drives change a little bit faster than if it would come from the private sector alone. But, you know, the stages you have to go to and what it looks like, I can do it very uh, quickly for the interest of time, but I refer to my book Net Positive, where we actually help in a very practical way uh, to answer the how question that you're raising and uh, talking about personal leadership to transform your companies and how you go through the different steps to get to the broader partnerships that are needed for these bigger systems changes. But it starts with getting to get, getting your own house in order uh, would probably be the most important thing. And frankly, that starts at the top. It starts with the leadership. Getting the right leadership in place is probably the most important thing. Uh, and bringing purpose to a company. And, and bringing purpose to a company, I would argue, starts with your own purpose. And Unilever, we spend a year on discovering our purposes and then collectively mm. develop the company purpose. And that became... Uh, making sustainable living commonplace. Why is that so important? Because obviously it's with that purpose that gives you the courage to take responsibility, as we argue in our book, of the total impact in this world, to set targets that are really needed based on science, not targets that you can get away with, to work these broader partnerships, which sometimes might be a little bit uh, difficult. It requires that stronger purpose or that true north to actually uh, withstand the pressures that come from the cynics and skeptics along the way. Then the second thing, what you really do once you have that purpose, it's actually you need to unlock what I would call the company soul. Uh, we went back to the history of Lord Lever. I took a page out of uh, Jim Collins from Good to Great, where he talked about nurturing the core before you stimulate progress. Lever already at that time had a purpose making hygiene commonplace, inventing brands like Sunlight Bar Soap or Lifebuoy and other things. Then you make it the cornerstone of the company strategy, not a sideshow by a CSR department somewhere in the basement. I don't know if you've seen the um, movie Office Space, but it always <laughs> reminds me of that when I, when I explain that to people. All employees have to write themselves into their story uh, to unleash that full potential. 
So you make an honest assessment as a company of where you are. What is really your imprint that you have, your whole handprint across the total value chain? For Unilever, that would mean, let's say, deforestation, food waste, stunting, the uh, sub-existent lives of smallholder farmers, and on the other side, obesity, for example. Then you assume responsibility of that total impact and set clear targets. Ideally, you make these targets public because it creates the trust, but it also forms that basis for these broader partnerships uh, that you need to uh, attack these challenges. Often there are issues that need to be handled across the value chain, or there are issues that require governments to change their policies because they are perforce consequences of the current rules, laws, or regulations on the books. So that's why these broader partnerships are so important. So that's really the steps that we're taking uh, and, and explaining in our book. And then most importantly, it is one of being consistent. Mm-hmm. We still see, uh, to your point, too many companies that, for example, make wonderful climate change agreements but, uh, or commitments, but then uh, let the trade associations lose to argue other things. Right. So how do you deal right. with corruption, with CEO salaries, with human rights issues, with these trade associations, with money in politics? These are the tougher challenges that need to be addressed with equal force to ensure that that trust is built, which ultimately is the basis of these partnerships that we're talking about. Luisa, we spend a lot of time together thinking and speaking about products that are both good for us and the planet. Yes, we do. Well, I want to tell you about one of the show's partners, New Hope Network, who helps support these kinds of products. Don't they run those big conferences like Natural Products Expo West and East? They do indeed. And as well as running events, New Hope is a media and business intelligence company that covers natural product trends, industry insights, and marketplace data that help educate the industry about key issues. Things like regenerative agriculture, sustainability, responsible sourcing, and a whole lot more. And they're proud sponsors of New Food Order because they want to help support conversations that bring radical transparency to our food system, that advocate for using business as a force for good, and that drive the changes we want to see in the world. New Hope is inviting us all to join the movement at its Natural Products Expo and on newhope.com. ESG, Environment, Social and Governance, is a term that's got way more traction today than it did in my early days as a reporter. And it's created a growing pool of impact investors. Investors who want to do good for the planet as well as their bank accounts. Yes, and Foodshot, one of our supporters for this show, is a great resource for those investors to find truly worthy investments. Absolutely. Foodshot unites investors with entrepreneurs innovating for a better food future. Each Foodshot, or a Moonshot for Better Food, represents a key opportunity to transform the food system. They have active food shots in innovating soil, precision protein, and biofoods, exactly the topics we're exploring on this show. You can learn more about Foodshot and their portfolio of groundbreakers at foodshot.org. And organizations looking to join the Foodshot network can email info at foodshot.org.
So I love when you say that it takes courage. It's just so refreshing to hear you say that. And, you know, it reminds me as I've been on this learning and unlearning journey, I've realized that in order to save or just stop destroying our planet, we actually have to focus on saving ourselves first. And a lot of that comes down to what you said, courage. Having the courage to face hard truths and to sit with ourselves, having the courage to do what it takes to actually build companies that put products into the world that we can be proud of and would actually feed our families. You know, as I said earlier, there are a lot of well-meaning people at these companies, but at the end of the day, as a leader, you have to have a lot of courage to stand up against the status quo and to get all your stakeholders aligned with transitioning a company to make it truly net positive for people on our planet. And while you were at Unilever, you demonstrated quite a bit of courage. So would love to hear more about that experience and a little bit more about what the business case is for a net positive business and how you think about bringing all your stakeholders along on the journey towards net positivity. So, Daniela, I like the word courage because it comes from the French word cur, which means heart. So anything that goes to the heart sticks in the brain. Otherwise, it will not really stick. And this book ultimately is about bringing humanity back to, uh, to business if you want to. So what we've seen clearly, uh, especially since COVID, we see two bifurcations happening. One is in terms of the business models, where we've seen broadly, you cannot generalize, but where we've seen broadly that companies that were positioned on the longer-term multi-stakeholder model with purpose at its core, embedding sustainability in all they do, have been doing relatively better than the companies that were myoptically focused on the shareholders alone. And uh, not, not surprising that about 80% of the ESG funds, loosely defined admittedly, but 80% of the ESG funds outperformed their peer funds. We've also seen a bifurcation on leadership style coming to your point of courage, where companies that had leaders that operated with a higher level of humanity, humility, uh, strongly purpose-driven, embracing the power of partnership, thinking multi-generational. These leaders instilled a higher level of trust at very uncertain times with many people living with a much higher level of anxiety than they did before. Um, these, these companies have done better. So increasingly, we're starting to see that actually profits and purpose are not really trade-offs, but I would argue reinforce each other. Um, you know, I would uh, argue, as I've done in Unilever, that it is actually profits through purpose that might be your best strategy nowadays. In Unilever, over my 10-year tenure, that meant 300% shareholder return, 19% uh, return on invested capital. Uh, and and outperforming actually top and bottom line our competitive set consistently year after year. So what we now start to see and what I think COVID has brought to life is that the cost of not acting now, uh, we've waited frankly so long, that the cost of not acting is actually becoming higher than the cost of acting. COVID, by the way, a direct result of destruction of biodiversity, another zoonotic disease like SARS, Ebola, Zika, Asian flu, probably four or five more waiting around the corner, um, has made people realize the enormous costs that we have because of our failures. We've spent $17 trillion just in Europe and the US to save lives and livelihoods and protect our economies. And you would argue with me that we're not even out of the woods yet. That's infinitely more than we would have had to spend to solve the issues in the first place. 
you're in the food much more and our food system is so broken. If you come from Mars, you wouldn't call us the most intelligent species. One of the latest studies shows that we have about $12 trillion of negative cost. I would argue it is much more because if we ultimately destroy our total biodiversity, we actually are in the process of destroying human beings. Biodiversity now to all businesses provides about $35 trillion of economic value, but unfortunately, we don't measure that or pay for it. So what we can see increasingly so is that these purpose-driven companies are actually also more profitable and, uh, and, and produce a higher return for their shareholders. They're more resilient. They have better relationships in their value chain, more in tune with what is happening in society. Their employees more engaged. They are better employer brand than I could go on. And all of this gets translated into better business results. And that's very much what we see. So I wouldn't call it anymore as much of a trade-off. It is a uh, it is a accelerator. Now, there are some issues. Uh, awareness is an issue. Many CEOs just simply aren't aware that, that most of the challenges that we face can be addressed with technology that we have today. And in the case of energy, uh, you know, very cheaper in 60 70% of the places. Sometimes it cannot be done alone. It needs that collective power. And as I mentioned before, in many cases still, we have perverse policies on the books that actually drive you in the wrong direction. With the B team, an organization I belong to, we estimate uh, that there's about $1.8 trillion of perverse subsidies that encourage the use of fossil fuel or destructive agricultural practices. The European cap policy, by the way, no exception to that. So we do need to work at those levels beyond the companies alone to address this. And that makes it sometimes difficult. And then I haven't talked, obviously, about this small but very focal group of skeptics or, or cynics that uh, want to protect their own vested order because it suits them well. They use the crisis in the Ukraine and the resulting food security crisis to say that we need to cut down more forests and degrade more land to feed people, or that we need to drill more holes and, and pump more fossil fuel, and energy and food obviously being closely related. Uh, that would be really putting the future of humanity even at a higher risk faster. So we do need to be sure that we stay the course and actually accelerate to this greener, more sustainable, more inclusive economy that we all uh, aspire to. Yeah, I'd love to dig in more into that behavior change and particularly with regarding to lobbyists and some of those entrenched processes that are ingrained in, in corporations. But just to come back to a bit more, you know, looking at companies that might be looking to become net positive and planet positive. What do you think about some of the, the frameworks and the business models that are out there and the standards like being B Corp, for instance? You know, which ones do you think are the best to help companies become planet positive? And, and over, what are your views of those kind of standards? Well, there are many, <laughs> there are many uh, different organizational models. Um, here in the UK, you have uh, John Lewis, which is a, a partnership model. Every employee owns a piece of the company. You have the co-op models, you have the B-Core models. They all have a validity. Uh, but in the end of the day, they all need to earn a profit. But profit, I think, is I always compare it with white blood cells. Uh, we need white blood cells to live, but none of us lives for white blood cells. And that should be the same in the corporate world. We need profits uh, to survive and to be able to invest and, and, uh, and, and be successful. But that shouldn't be the only purpose for what we are here. And increasingly, as I said, we can see that companies that are more purpose-driven do better. 
but it requires a little bit of a systems change if we want to get there. Uh, we need to move financial markets to the longer term. We cannot live in economies that continuously show to be subservient to the financial market, whilst we really have invented the financial market to be subservient to the real economy. We need to be sure that we create different type of leaders. Ultimately, I don't think this is an issue as much of food security or climate change or inequality. It's an issue of greed, of apathy, of selfishness. So we need to address that by thinking about developing different leaders from our educational programs to the way we, we train, reward and, and select them in, in, in the real lives. And then we need to uh, you know change our measurement system. Uh, some people say, right or wrongfully so, we treasure what we measure. But if we continue to measure only the return on financial capital and not the return on human or social or environmental capital, we miss the boat. So increasingly, yeah, people are thinking about that and saying, what are these overall well-being measures that we need to put in place to ensure that we define it broader? That's the reason why we launched the Sustainable Standard Board at the COP26 in Glasgow not long ago. That's the reason why we have the European taxonomy and the non-financial reporting directives that are coming in. That's a reason why uh, many countries are looking at redefining their GDP concept, which after all doesn't measure clean air, quality of education, peace, or the continuous uh, uh, destruction of biodiversity and move to a broader uh, concept of overall uh, well-being. So these efforts are going on, clearly not fast enough to my tasting, but uh, we definitely need to focus on those and accelerate them and, and change the way we define success. So just as a as a follow up to that, and it's a bit, you know, more kind of radical thinking, but some, you know, argue that capitalism is at odds with planet positivity or net positivity, and that to truly affect positive change and transformation, the whole system needs an overhaul. What do you think about about those views? You know, capitalism is a word and it is what you define it. So I've I've stayed away more and more from the intellectual discussion on capitalism. But if capitalism is only the return on financial capital, you have the problems that we currently see. But if it also has the possibility to uh, to uh, measure the return on, on other forms of capital, like social capital, environmental capital, the human capital that we talked about, then I think we have a fair shot at that. So uh, capitalism in itself is not the problem of, of the issue that we're facing, in my opinion. It certainly doesn't help the way it is defined now in the dominance of the financial market in this, the uh, short-termism that, in, that continues to prevail, the absence of uh, protection in corporate laws and governance courts to get people to behave differently. But these are all things that I think we can address and create a, an economic order that uh, is 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 uh, in line with uh, in harmony with planet Earth and future generations. We have many different forms of governance around the world that go beyond capitalism, and I haven't found yet a correlation between these other forms of governance being better uh, with uh, with our biodiversity or our planetary health than capitalism itself. To be honest. Okay, one final one final question for you. So I'd um, love to hear a few of your key lessons from Unilever um, and also since publishing your book and um, if there's any other companies that you're working with that you could point to real progress. And since we you know, haven't had a chance to come back to that piece, you're talking about the B team and um, you know, affecting transformation in terms of all of those associations and lobbyists that work behind the scenes. You know, is there any kind of examples um, you could talk about there, perhaps even at your time at Unilever? 
Yeah. So what is very clear is that governance isn't quite working in the world. We have not addressed these major issues. And as a result, people are increasingly dissatisfied and they've elected uh, xenophobics, uh, populists, nationalists. Uh, multilateralism is, is not working anymore. We're actually growing apart uh, more than growing together at a time that we need to work together on managing these issues like the pandemics or climate change or cybersecurity or financial markets. So that is why we argue in our book that uh, responsible business needs to step up and fill that void. And it doesn't need all businesses. It would be naive to think that all businesses would be responsible. I don't think that's the case. But if we can get a critical mass of businesses to move forward, uh, then hopefully we can give governments also more courage to move faster. It's very much what the Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres said happened in the COP26. And I see that increasingly happening in other parts of the world as well. So the first thing that is a lesson is the importance of that strong partnership that is needed to solve these bigger problems. Optimizing within a current system, like you rightfully point out, whatever name you give it, that is not designed to deliver anymore is actually becoming lunacy. We need to drive these broader systems changes. The second learning is really the importance of the leadership. It's, you know, some people write big books about technology that we need, and that's very important. But that has always been the case in history. But frankly, we don't need technology to figure out a food system that doesn't cut down our forests, degrade our land, or keep our smallholder farmers poor. We don't need more technology to build toilets or build houses for the homeless or for the people that are open defecating. So it's a, it's a matter of human willpower. Are we able to rise to that challenge, put the interest of others ahead of our own, knowing that by doing so, we're better off ourselves as well? Or will we continue to look just after our own minoptic self-interest and uh, drive ourselves all down? So it's a leadership issue. And the third one is that the uh, we do need to obviously change the financial markets, as I referred to. It is, uh, has been pr difficult, at least in my tenure, to convince the financial market. Simply, we didn't have the facts of why this was a better way of running our business. And at that time period, Milton Friedman still dominated, if I may say so. But uh, we've moved on. We increasingly know that more gender diverse companies perform better. Companies that have less exposure to carbon itself are higher valued by the financial market. If you have more uh, better treatments of human rights in your value chain, you have a higher level of resilience that ultimately gets to the company results. So increasingly, we can see that it actually uh, is better for all of your stakeholders, including the shareholders. So these are, these are sort of some of the things that we have to keep in mind as we move forward. There are tremendous examples emerging of these partnerships, not least in the COP26, with the race to zero, uh, or race to, zero, race to resilience, um, the uh, first mover uh, coalition that has been established. Uh, the food and land use work that we are doing is starting to show some initial progress. And uh, let me refer to two things that I've been focused on as part of my uh, activities uh, post Unilever, which is uh, creating uh, Imagine, which is a social enterprise where we create a neutral platform to bring a critical mass of CEOs along the value chain together to drive to these more transformational changes. We're doing that in food. We're doing that in uh, tourism and travel. We're doing that in fashion. For example, 70 fashion companies now working with Conservation International to internalizing uh, science-based targets for nature. Probably more work done there than in other industries, collectively buying green energy. 
food companies moving together across the value chain to accelerate the move to regenerative agriculture. Whilst we don't pretend that it solves all of the problems, we've seen clearly an acceleration of some of the things that need to be addressed. And increasingly, if you have sort of 25, 30% of a sector together, then governments are also starting to get more interested. And uh, we might be seeing policy changes that then accelerate and take care of the free riders and the ones that really don't have this uh, higher moral standard that we're looking for. So these are enormous partnerships that are coming up that we find now in every industry around climate change or in any of the other transformations that are needed. You look at uh, mobility, uh, where we are close to a tipping point, or um, solar and wind, where we're close to tipping points. New partnerships are being formed to get to responsible sourcing of these new materials that we need to look at labor standards differently, to ensure that these transitions are just transitions and don't leave anybody behind. So yeah, that is the way to move forward if we really want to solve these challenges within the time frame that we have. And frankly, study after study shows it's by all means possible still. Paul, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And thank you for all of the insights that you shared, all of your wisdom. This has been such a great conversation and we're really just so grateful to you for your leadership generally in this space. It's really refreshing to hear you talking about heart and courage and I hope it's a message that we can spread further to the industry. I look forward to that and thanks for what you're doing and uh, this is a team sport so we need all of us. Thank you very much. Danielle, I really love how he ends and actually started by saying this is a team sport because it is and it really requires all of us. Absolutely. And I hope that everyone listening feels a part of that journey. And as you go on to the next part of your day, we just want to thank you for the time you're dedicating to this investigation. And part of what we hope to offer you is a space for reflection. So we'd like to invite you to spend time contemplating that question Paul gave us today. Is the world better off because your business is in it? Yeah, and if you're not a business owner, if you're a food systems worker, an employee, or you're an eater, then you can use this question to think about the companies that you have a relationship with or that you buy from. And we don't want anyone to feel guilty or to feel like your answer has to be perfect. Part of this learning and unlearning journey is giving ourselves the grace to confront the problems and to do it together. Exactly, so ask your friends, be civil, have a good time and share your thoughts with us in the comments or on our social media channels. Yes, come chat with us on Instagram or LinkedIn at New Food Order. And here's a taste of what you can expect next time. I'm an Indigenous woman. I know the value that Indigenous people have to bring to this conversation. Thinking that regenerative agriculture is some new solution to some new problem is ignoring, like I said, the, the millennia of experience that Indigenous people have had and the success that they've had in their own food systems, some of which have lasted 5,000 years. And we have a lot to learn from people who have created food systems that continuously feed people for 5,000 years.
Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our industry-leading food and agriculture newsletters at newfoodorder.org. A huge thank you to New Hope Network and Food Chat Global for sponsoring this show. New Food Order is brought to you by AgFunder and Food and Tech Connect. It is produced by Pamela Rothenberg with assistance from Anna DeWolf Evans. The editor is Mercy Barno with original music from Rodrigo Barbera. Designs by Lola Nankin and Rakai Campbell. And the project manager is Patrick Carter at CoFruition. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Co-fruition.